Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, would you now open our eyes to see and behold the truth of who you are, the truth of your word that you have revealed to us. Would you open our eyes to to hear and understand like those who first heard these words, we hear them today, though not for the first time perhaps, but would we hear them with new ears to hear what it is that you want us to see and the one you want us to see behind these words, Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. You have... Certainly, like, like me, watched a little boy, maybe seven or eight years old. Something has happened. It's in public. It's not behind closed doors, but something has happened, and he is fighting back the tears. That's an expression that we are all too familiar with, fighting back the tears. You'll see somebody at a news conference whose tragedy has befallen them, and they fight back the tears to, to explain the circumstances. The reality is, whether you're 8 or 80, tears are legitimate. Tears are appropriate. And tears are to be expected in a world that is broken. And yet we fight them back. We fight back those tears. There's, there's maybe a lot of different reasons why, why we do. Sometimes, if you've ever been at a funeral for a family member, sometimes you're fighting back the tears because you think you need to be strong for others. Or may it's related to sort of a bravado that carries beyond the funeral home into all of life that that what we can't do is let anyone see that kind of weakness. The baseball coach tells his young player, if the pitcher hits you with a fastball, I don't care how much it hurts. Don't let them see you rub it. And we grow up with a mentality like that in the world in which we live. Sometimes it's simply a refusal to be embarrassed by tears. But eventually... Whatever the reasons that we want or think that we should fight back tears, eventually, if we are not careful, what we develop is an inability to shed tears. And for some of us, it may be that as we left childhood behind, we left behind any ability to shed tears. We come to a passage, and as we, Nate reminded us moments ago, 
we come to a passage that we call the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and the blessings that are ours. And, and then we find these words, blessed are the poor in spirit, and now we hear blessed are those who mourn. It's not how we would paint the picture. But as we were also reminded last week, that sometimes what we need to understand, and here is one of them, that, that what Jesus is telling us He's referring to something that's grander and more substantial than our subjective views of happiness, but something that is more objective and true in the end. And that's what we find. And here it is, mourning. I want us to, I'm gonna, I've got three questions I want to try to unpack. One of them I'm going to re- rephrase as we go. But the first one is this. What is it to mourn? What is it to mourn? Jesus has something in mind, and we have some experience. Do they match? Does what Jesus, what he's trying to say, match our understanding of what it is to mourn? That's the first question. The the reality is, for most of us, mourning has all to do with loss of some kind. I'm going to guess that as you were thinking about mourning... As we started this, the, where your mind goes may be to the funeral home or the loss of a loved one, or as someone mentioned this morning, the loss of their 13, pet of 13 years. There's, there's a loss or there's a gap between what was and what now is. And we know that there's a, sometimes a mourning that goes with that. But whether it's the death of a family member or as we've read in the, in the Old Testament, Family members plus leaders, the people of Israel, often quickly mourned the loss of a, of a father or a son or a leader. There's a mourning that goes with the missing of what is now no longer. Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, weeps. Nehemiah learned that the walls of Jerusalem were broken and the gates had been burned. And we read in chapter one that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. We read in Psalm 137 of the people of Israel who sat by the waters of Babylon, by the river. And there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There's a mourning that goes when we recognize that what once was now is no longer. One New Testament scholar, an Anglican churchman, R.T. France, about this passage says this, those who mourn are not necessarily the bereaved or even the penitent. They are the suffering. Those whose life is, from a worldly point of view, an unhappy one, and particularly those who suffer for their loyalty to God. And he strikes a note when he gets to the end of his his definition, because we will come later in the Beatitudes of those who suffer because of their loyalty to God. It's not necessarily bereaved, but it does not, I would suggest to you, does not skip over the penitent. In fact, you can make a good case that that's primarily what Jesus has in mind. And I say it for this reason. Last week we learned that 
to be poor in spirit, it has nothing to do with your bank account. It's not poor, it's poor in spirit. There's a spiritual bankruptcy. It's a spiritual notion. It's the first step toward Christ. It's the first step into the gospel to realize that we are bankrupt. And the second beatitude that follows, right on the heels, is principally referring to a spiritual mourning that includes our repentance. But here's how I want to rephrase our question. What kind of sorrow can it be which brings the joy of Christ's blessing to those who feel it? What kind of sorrow can it be which brings the joy of Christ's blessing to those who feel it? And I've got four handles I want to give us today on this. What kind of sorrow? Four features. The first one is this. It's a mourning that includes tears for the fallen, fallenness of the world. It's a mourning that includes tears for the fallenness of the world. We live in a fallen world, and you knew that before you came in today. <laughs> you knew that when you read yesterday's newspaper, or today's, if you've seen it yet. And it'll remind you again tomorrow of the fallenness of the world in which we live, or the webpage that you visit to get your news. It will come to you, and you will recognize once again that the world in which we live is fallen. That is the biblical terminology. It is a broken world, a fallen world, and it lacks integrity, and it is marked by injustice and cruelty and selfishness. It's everywhere. We see it all the time, and sometimes we see it in ourselves. But there's a brokenness of the world that elicits a response from anyone paying attention. And if you're paying attention to the brokenness and the fallenness of the world, your response looks like something. And my question for us, including me, is what is that? What is my response to the fallenness and the brokenness of this world? Is it condemnation? You know, every, uh, we're, every election year is right around the corner, Right? We don't have to look far for condemnation. We're always, somebody's always running for something and there's condemnation to follow. But there's, a, there's condemnation, there's a righteous indignation and that is appropriate at times in the brokenness of the world when we see cruelty and selfishness and injustice. A righteous indignation, by the way, sometimes our indignation is not righteous. You know that too, right? <laughs> condemnation, a righteous indignation but does it ever get to this one? Does our response to the fallenness of the world ever include mournful tears? Do you ever read the paper and want to weep? Or do you wad it up and throw it against the wall? Jesus was the one who said when he looked down, apparently, upon the city of Jerusalem, and he, he said this out loud. Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Do you hear the mourning in that pronouncement? 
It's a prayer of mourning. It's not unlike what he would have read and known from, psalm, from the psalmist. My eyes shed, te- shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Condemnation, righteous indignation. How about mournful tears? The kind of mourning that leads us down this path tastes the salt of tears like Jesus' tears over Jerusalem and the psalmist who sheds streams of tears because people do not keep your law. We would do well, friends, to add that to whatever else is our response to the brokenness of the world. That's the first one. It includes tears for the fallenness of the world. It starts, however, with a spirit-induced attitude toward our own sin. It's not something that we come up with on our own. It is spirit-induced. It's the spirit of God who opens our eyes to see the fullness and the reality and the nature and the depth of our own sin. Ian Duguid, writing about this passage, says this about the two Beatitudes that we are now considering. If understanding our lack of resources to save ourselves is the first step, spiritual poverty, on the road to becoming a Christian, then this realization is surely step two, recognizing the fact that we are sinners and mourning that fact. You hear what he's saying, right? It's not, it's not that we get away with saying, sinner, yeah, that's me. What else is new? That's not new, by the way. But the reality is, sinner, that is me, and it leads to something else. And in the words of another scholar, Michael Green, who died earlier this year, he says, he wrote, it is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and to mourn over it. It's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and mourn over it. Some of you last week were beginning to grieve and mourn, and you got to the second beatitude before we did. But here we are. And by the work of God's Spirit, maybe we, maybe all of us are, are entering into the second beatitude. It's one thing to acknowledge our sin, but it's another to grieve and mourn over it. And we cannot do it in a flash. We cannot do it in a moment. But the grieving that, and the mourning that Jesus has in mind is something that carries us, that we live in, that we, could I say, camp out in. until God breaks through, and he will, and we'll get to that. But it starts with a spirit-induced attitude toward our sin. It's the Apostle Paul, who was so, Romans 7, who was so grief-stricken about himself. You remember that? What I want to do, I cannot do, and that which I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. 
Would someone deliver me? Would there be somebody to deliver me from this? That's a mourning. That is a, that's a wrestling and it's an owning. And it's, a, it's not bypassing it and superficially checking the box. It's to recognize that there are parts of my life that I have been unable to change. There are parts of your life that seem fixed that aren't. It's, it starts with a spirit-induced attitude to sin, and it involves, this is the third feature, it, it, it involves our sense of guilt and shame, our sense of guilt and shame. It's not, a, it's not as simple as checking the box, I'm a sinner. It's to recognizing that, that it's what defines me to a degree. Now, the gospel breaks in, and you are redefined. You are, friends, a, if you're in Christ, a justified sinner. You're, you're a righteous sinner. But, there, but the sin that so easily entangles still does. And we have trouble running the race because of the sin which so easily entangles. And you know yours and I know mine and some of you know mine. <laughs> but the reality is it is my sin. It is my guilt and my shame. James 1 says each each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, her own desire. It is yours. It is mine. It is our desire. That's the problem. We can't blame a lack of education. We can't blame our upbringing. It is mine. It is ours. One writer put it like this. Sin takes advantage of your sinful, my sinful desires by promising satisfaction in the expression and fulfillment of those desires. But instead, we are to take the blame for wanting to sin. You want to sin because you are a sinner. Now that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. That's the spiritual poverty that leads us to mourning and as we mourn, we have to learn how because we don't know how to do that either. Thomas Watson was a mid-17th century Anglican pastor in mostly in London. And he wrote these words. Blushing is the color of virtue. We don't blush much in this culture, do we? Blushing is the color of virtue. What the heart has been made black with sin Grace makes the face red with blushing. You see, the blushing or the mourning that that entails is, is the work of God's grace. It's the wake up. It's the spiritual. It's spirit induced, right? It's the wake up that we experience where we recognize I'm needy. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing to commend myself to a holy and a righteous God. That's what Ezra understood when he prayed corporately for the sins of the people. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. 
You see, it's only when we see our sin from God's perspective will we see it like that, will we see it rightly and begin to mourn. Ezra did not sing the song that we sang moments ago. He didn't, he didn't have the whole story. He didn't know that, that, st- that streams of sorrow will not overflow, that will not overwhelm you. But it's in the streams of sorrow where we, where we get our footing. We will not be knocked off of our feet in the streams of sorrow. It's actually where we get our footing. It's where we get our spiritual footing. It's in the streams that look like they may overwhelm us and throw us underwater into the bottom of a river. But instead, it is where we get our footing. And we are able to then move toward the one who has moved toward us. And with Paul, we groan within ourselves, waiting for adoption. That's mourning. It's that groaning within ourselves, waiting for the fullness of our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. Well, it's a spirit-induced. It includes an awareness of my own guilt and shame. But mourning over sin marks the path to forgiveness. It lines the path the forgiveness. These are the benchmarks. These are the signposts along the way to where forgiveness is found. And Jesus has told that story and illustrates this beatitude in that parable again of the two men before God, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the one parading, so to speak, his own righteous confession and prayers before the God who who made him, and then there is the, the tax collector who dared not look up, who says, have mercy on me, literally, the sinner. Have mercy on me, the sinner. And it was the tax collector, Jesus reminds us, who went home justified. Jesus is teaching that the man who mourns over his sin, the woman who mourns over her sin, is the one who is not condemned, but is justified. And Jesus tells that story to the Pharisees who are listening. And what we are to hear is not only his words, but their stunned silence. Their stunned silence that it was the tax collector that was justified because he mourned appropriately and rightly. That's not what they were expecting. What do you expect when we get to that parable? Is it stunned silence or is it an evangelical yawn? Because we know it was the tax collector who did not look, at the, look up, who was justified and went home. Is there any kind of spiritual complacency, friends? Or instead, would you, with that tax collector, bend before a holy God and say, have mercy on me, the sinner?
stuff gets in the way? That's my second question. What stands in the way of this kind of mourning? Nothing has helped me more than the work of that 17th, mid-17th century Anglican pastor in London, Thomas Watson, who says mourning over our sin is hindered by a hard heart. That's a biblical picture. The opposite of mourning, what is the opposite of mourning? It's hardness of heart, he says, which in scripture is called a heart of stone, Ezekiel 36. That's the opposite of mourning. A heart of stone is far from mourning and repenting. And he says, a heart of stone, how do you recognize it? Well, it's got two symptoms. See if you recognize one or more. A heart of stone is characterized by insensibility. That is the first. A stone is not sensible of anything. You lay a weight upon it or grind it to a powder, it does not feel it. So it is with a hard heart. It is insensitive to both its own sin and God's wrath. The stone, Thomas writes, the stone in the kidneys is felt, but the stone in the heart is not. It's what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 where he describes those who have lost all sensitivity. They've, they've become callous is another expression. Uh, the New King James translates that being past feeling. Some of us sort of approach that, it seems. We're, we're, we're past that. We have a gospel way of getting past that, don't we? But what we really are called to do is to understand that mourning is to mark our lives in this world as righteous sinners who've, been, who've received grace. There's still a place for us to mourn. In, insensibility is the first. The second feature is this. It's inflexibility. A stone will not bend, he writes. That is hard, which does not yield to touch. So it is with a hard heart. It will not comply with God's commands. It will not stoop to Christ's scepter. A heart of stone will sooner break than bend by repentance. It is far from yielding to God. Like that of the anvil, it beats back the hammer. It always resists the Holy Spirit. He goes on to write and say, Oh, Christians, if you would be spiritual mourners, take heed of the stone of heart. Citing Hebrews 3, if you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. A stony heart, he says, is the worst heart. If it were bronze, it might be melted in the furnace. Or it might be bent with a hammer. But a stony heart is such that only the arm of God can break it and only the blood of Christ can soften it. And some of you know what it is to have a hard heart that has been softened by the beauty and the love of Christ. And that's what elicits the spirit-induced awareness of our sin, but also doesn't leave us there. We move through an awareness into mourning that leads the way to the forgiveness. And guess what? We go home justified. Psalm 3 talks about someone who would be the lifter of our head. And as the story of redemption unfolds, we understand more and more that the one who lifts our head 
is the Lord Jesus himself. This is the result of the kind of mourning that we are talking about, that Jesus is talking about. It's a comfort that comes to us. By the way, this is the first of the shall be beatitudes. We noted previously that these beatitudes begin with and end with the, the, the kingdom of God is yours. And in between we have these shall be's. And the reality is there is a kingdom of God which is real and is present and there's a part of it that is future. And, it, and they are joined together and that future has broken in which is why we can say the kingdom of God is yours. But there's something yet to come. There was always a promise. And you know, reading the Old Testament, there's one promise after another, and there's a central promise to all of the promises. And it's the promise of a redeemer. The psalmist says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. There's a promise of something to come. There's a promise, a promise that we read about of a comfort that will come. Psalm 119, that this is my comfort that your promise gives me life. It was the prophet Jeremiah who says, then shall the young men, talking about a future day, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. Look at this picture, friends. There, when the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old men shall be merry. And I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. An exchange occurs. Mourning turned into joy. Gladness for sorrow. And Isaiah takes us down this road when he writes these words. Speaking of one to come, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to comfort all who mourn. We heard this earlier, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, writes Isaiah, to comfort those who mourn, all those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And the psalmist asks this question, my eyes long for your promise I ask, when will you comfort me? And Jesus says, now. Jesus walks into the temple, into a synagogue in Nazareth. He takes up the scriptures which were opened to Isaiah 61. And before the hearers reads that passage and then closes the book and says these words. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Mourning is turning to joy. Sorrow being replaced with gladness. The work of redemption has begun and is fulfilled in Christ. And all of the things that cause us to mourn are answered in the face of Christ. David Paulison was the dean of the faculty of the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation in Philadelphia, the counseling ministry of Westminster Theological Seminary. David was invited to give the commencement address 
at the May 23rd graduation this past month. He was unable because his body had been ravished with cancer. But he wrote words that were read. And they were the concluding, closing comments of the ceremony. This is part of what he wrote. Jesus is portrayed throughout his life as one who mourns. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted, well acquainted, deeply acquainted with grief, citing Isaiah 53. And then he wrote this. He mourns for your sake. He mourns for his own suffering that he must face. He mourns for all the things that are wrong in this world. And he comes on a mission of mercy to make wrongs right. Two weeks later in hospice, he was surrounded by family. His life in this world ended and he learned how true those words were. How full, how complete those words were. How, how finished was the work of Jesus Christ. How complete, how satisfying, how satisfactory. I mentioned Psalm 3, Lord, oh Lord, you are my glory in the lifter of your head. And we know that is Jesus. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson treats that. Jesus comes to us. He puts his hand on our chin. And he says, lift up your eyes. Look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. Put away your garments of mourning. Because joy has come. Comfort has broken in to this world. There's a fullness to this comfort that we do not know yet. There is a longing in our hearts that makes us long for a world to come. There is mourning that marks us. But friends, it has broken in. It has broken into this world. In Psalm 58, David says to God, you have kept count of my tossings. Do put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your books? Put my tears in your bottle. They're already in your books. You see, friends, that God has a double memorial. A double memorial of our miseries filed away. Tears stored. Events recorded. It makes his intervention certain. And he has intervened in Christ's coming and in his coming again. And we know how this story ends, that there will be a day when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Revelation 21, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That wipe away. That's a, it's a beautiful picture. And sometimes we think of, this is Michael Card's help. He, sometimes we think of God with a divine handkerchief. 
But it's better to understand that the word that he uses there is a fierce wiping out. It could almost be translated stamping out, that the Lord stamps out our tears like he has tread our iniquities underfoot as we considered moments ago from Micah 7. As he treads our iniquities underfoot, he stamps out our tears out of love and mercy for a people who are his. In the sufferings of this present time, now Paul's words begin to make sense. They make a little bit more sense to me (laughs) after thinking about this beatitude, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Most of you are familiar with this one line from Tolkien's The Return of the King, which seems to fit right here. It's Gandalf and Sam, and Gandalf was thought to be dead, and now he's alive, and Sam is is stunned and startled. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself in the story. And then he says, ask the question, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? That's a question we can ask, that we can ask and chuckle. What's happened to the world? Because there's something that has happened. And Gandalf's words is what I really, the rest of what he says is what I want you to ponder this morning. He says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had had not heard laughter. The pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. There is a laughter and a joy and in Jesus' beatitude, a comfort that awaits you. On that day, a great shadow will have departed because a greater light has dawned. Isaiah 35 reads like this, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Mourning indeed is turned to joy. The food is being prepared. The instruments are being tuned. The dancing is about to start. The music, if you have ears to hear, do you hear the voice of the one, the host calling you by name? You see, the marriage supper of the Lamb awaits you. And a bit of that comfort seeps into this world now. Today, this scripture is fulfilled. And as you listen longly to the voice of Christ, who whispers back to you, you know this to be true. Blessed are those who mourn. for they shall be comforted. Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts to be able to take in, take that in and to move through the, the streams of sorrow that mark our life in this world. Would you give us feet to, on solid ground in the midst of those sorrows? And to mourn over the brokenness of our own hearts and lives, the brokenness of this world.
and to know that you have broken in to a broken world with that which is good and lovely and pure and right and comfort to all who look to you as we do through Christ our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen.